Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... To quote Richard Nixon's chief economic advisor, Herb Stein, if something cannot continue forever, it will stop. The question is, how will it stop? John Kemp on these extraordinary times in energy markets. We are recording this podcast on the morning of Monday, February 28th. And I'm telling you the date because the situation in Ukraine and Russia is moving quite fast. And so some details might have changed by the time you hear this episode. And this episode, by the way, is not principally about the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, nor is it about the economic sanctions against Russia by the U.S. and Europe. This episode is about global energy markets, oil, gas, renewable technologies, what are the latest trends, what are some possible futures. But we also couldn't avoid talking about geopolitical events like what's happening in Russia and Ukraine, because one of the themes of this episode is how energy markets really are truly global. What's happening in Russia has big effects on what's happening in Europe, which itself has a big effect on what's happening in American energy markets, and what happens in East Asia, in Africa, Latin America, especially in developing countries in those regions, also affects energy markets everywhere else. And our guest for this chat is really the perfect person to discuss all this with. His name is John Kemp. He's an energy analyst for Reuters. And I especially want to recommend his newsletter, which is free and which you should subscribe to. It's called Best in Energy, and it is my own personal favorite way of staying on top of what's happening in energy markets. And I think that after this chat, you'll understand why that is. Here it is. John Kemp, welcome to The New Bazaar. Thanks for having me on, Cardiff. So... John, I've been following your work on energy for a long time, but it was actually only this morning that I came across uh, your kind of statement of purpose, which is on your Twitter feed about how you actually cover energy markets and your kind of philosophical approach to it. And what you write is, and I'm quoting you, I am pro-energy, but source and system agnostic, unquote. So let's start there. What do you mean by that? Yeah, what I'm trying to do is to to say, look, we need energy in our daily lives. Energy is what allows us to, to travel. It's what allows us to stay warm. It's what allows us to do all the things that we love doing. And as societies have become, as history has progressed, we've used increasing amounts of energy, and that enables us to have those kind of very fulfilling lives. And there are millions, there are billions of people in the third world who also want to join us in having those kind of very fulfilling lives. So I'm very pro-energy, but I'm very source agnostic. And it doesn't really matter whether the energy comes from coal, oil, gas, nuclear, renewables. We need a lot of energy um, to lead those kind of lives. Obviously, some of those forms of energy have some important externalities. You know, we the, the combustion like of fossil fuels. Absolutely. Yeah. How we make those trade-offs is often a political question. That's a, that's a values question. And that's not my job. My job is to analyze what's going on in energy markets, explain what the trade-offs are, and allow the reader or the policymaker um, to make up their own mind. So that's what I mean by I'm very source agnostic. Yeah. And it's not just that it's your job, though. You make the point that, in fact, when you start taking sides, it becomes very hard to do good analysis Right. Which doesn't mean you can't have your own personal opinions. But when you approach analysis specifically, if you're on a side, it becomes very hard not to see everything through the prism of being on that side. So I just thought that was a really interesting point uh, in this in this comment you made. The longer that I've been doing this and I've, I've been doing this job and previous ones like it for, for a quarter of a century now, um, one of the things that I think I've learned is that you can be either an analyst or a participant, but you can't be both. 
you can be an analyst, which means that you have to be very objective. You have to try to be very detached. You have to understand, as one of my one of my greatest inspirations told me, sometimes bad things happen. Sometimes the thing that you would like to happen doesn't, and instead something that you think is very bad happens. And as an analyst, you have to be able to cope with that. As a participant, you want to be able to advocate. You want to you want to push. And if that means sort of slightly colouring the analysis, then that's fine. You know, if you are Joe Biden or if you are Boris Johnson or Vladimir Putin, you have a particular point of view that you want to push. As an analyst, I don't have a point of view that I'm trying to push. I'm trying to lay out the options and the trade-offs and allow the reader to make their own choice. And as I say, I think over the years, I've become ever more, I, I feel very strongly that you can be an analyst or a participant, but you can't be both. We are going to get into a lot of detail on some of these markets. But first, I have a question about just how you would describe the times we're in. I mean, I'm catching you this week inside of an incredibly busy, chaotic, hectic month in energy markets, which itself is inside a busy, hectic, chaotic year, which itself is inside an incredibly intense, difficult kind of multi-year economic cycle. I mean, in all the time you've been covering energy markets, you have seen a lot. I mean, the last 15 years have been kind of an extraordinary sequence of events in energy markets. How would you describe the times we're in right now? Well, energy markets have always been cyclical. I mean, uh, you know, that, that cyclical volatility is the defining characteristic of energy markets, whether it's oil, gas, coal. What's unusual is that we're in a sort of particularly extreme cycle. We had this very extreme uh, slump in energy consumption and energy prices back in 2020 as a result of the pandemic and the lockdowns. And then what we've seen coming off to that is this very extreme rebound. So we went from a situation where the world was awash with surplus energy uh, in the second quarter of 2020, in the third quarter of 2020, consumption dropped very quickly um, and production was quite slow to adjust. But then since then, we've had an exceptionally strong rebound in economic activity and energy consumption. And again, consumption has lagged behind. So we've moved from massive surpluses in the energy markets in 2020 to really large and persistent deficits in 2021 and now into 2022. And that's what we've gone almost is from, from bust to boom in record time. This has been an exceptionally compressed economic cycle and energy market cycle. So the, the nearest analogue to what we're seeing today is probably the very tight energy markets and very high prices that we saw back in 2008 when oil prices were rising towards a sort of record level. We are taping this on Monday, February 28th. And so in the morning, as I'm looking at, you know, this Bloomberg screen right now, the price of a barrel of oil is a little bit over $100. And I'm going by the Brent crude price, which is roughly the global price of oil. Uh, can you just kind of place that a little bit in historical context? Uh, is that anywhere close to the peak from the past? How should we think about where oil prices are right now? So the peak back in 2008 was $147 a barrel, very briefly. But hmm. you've got to remember that there's been a lot of inflation since then. Um, in today's money, that peak was actually about hundred, almost $190 a barrel if we were to express it in today's money. So we're still quite a long way off that. The way I think about it usually is to kind of look at, a, a, say, a, to take oil prices in real terms, adjust for inflation. And depending on what time period we look at, and particularly whether we include the 1990s, which was a, pe a long period of very low oil prices, depending on whether we include or exclude that. Oil prices today are somewhere between about the 65th and the 80th percentile. So they of are... Of the peak, of the pr of prior peak. No, of all, of every day, of every month going back either to the year 2000 or to the year 1990. If we express oil prices in real terms... We're roughly in about the 65th to the 80th percentile. 
Okay. Um, so we are above average. We're well above average, but prices are still quite a way away from being what you might call extreme. Okay, so high but not unprecedentedly mm-hmm. high is is accurate. Absolutely okay, great. There's a there's something about what's happening in oil that I think is really important to understand, and that's been kind of a focus of your recent work, which is the astonishingly rapid decline in oil inventory throughout the world. So can you first just kind of explain what oil inventory actually means and then give us a sense of how quickly it's falling and why that matters in terms of, you know, whether or not this trend of rising oil prices is sustainable right now? So the oil inventory is the is the total stock of unrefined crude oil, uh, but also uh, refined fuels like gasoline, diesel, gas oil, etc. around the world. Some of that stock is held for operational purposes. Obviously, refineries need some some crude oil on site to be able to ensure a smooth flow into their distillation apparatus. Some of it is held in the distribution system by wholesalers. Some of it is held on board a tanker on the way from the oil field um, to the refinery. And then on top of that, you also have what you call strategic stocks. So those are stocks held either by governments or oil companies to protect against um, any sort of sudden production interruptions or embargoes such as what we had in the 1970s with the oil shocks then. So there are very large inventories held around the world. We don't actually have a comprehensive number. Um, A good estimate would be probably eight or nine billion barrels of of petroleum inventories. Um, And to put that in context, daily production and consumption is about 100 million barrels. Now, as I said before, when we, back in 2020, uh, when we went into the pandemic and the lockdowns, production exceeded consumption by around about 1.2 billion barrels. So we added 1.2 billion barrels to inventory. Uh, Since the middle of 2020, pretty much every month, production has been below consumption. We've been drawing down, we've been depleting inventories. And the cumulative depletion has been about 1.1 billion barrels. So we are now pretty much back to the level of inventory that we had at the end of 2019, the beginning of 2020, before the pandemic spread to the Western world. Yeah, so we are consuming oil now much more aggressively than we are producing it, leading to oil inventories declining. And what you write here, and I want to emphasize this quote for a second in one of your recent columns, is there is no precedent for such rapid depletion of stocks in recent decades. And the EIA estimates, that's the uh, Energy Information Administration in the U.S., the EIA estimates that stocks have fallen further in January and February. In other words, in recent decades, no precedent for how quickly inventory is falling. So we should not be surprised that the price is going up, right? No, absolutely not. I mean, we we have stocks are already now very low. They were quite low before the pandemic and we're back to that level and they're continuing to fall. So we're moving into a world where the market is exceptionally tight and we would expect prices to be very high. We'd expect prices to be high to encourage faster production growth. And we would expect prices to be very high to start to restrain consumption growth a little bit. And that's what, you know, as I say, that's the kind of adjustment that we're starting to see um, in 2022. Yeah. And in terms of what explains these trends, I think one side of this is pretty easy to understand. The part where the consumption of oil has rebounded faster than I think a lot of us expected back in 2020 when we were really in the depth of the downturn because of the pandemic. Well, the global economy has responded not like wonderfully well, but it has responded, I think, better than many people expected. Certainly that includes here in the U.S. Um, That part's easy to understand. I think a little bit harder for people to understand is, well, why hasn't the production of oil kept up? Like what has been keeping oil producing countries uh, and oil producing companies from responding to those high prices uh, by producing more enough to keep up with 
consumption. And here there's a few possibilities that you've listed in your columns, but I'd love you to kind of just give us a rundown of what some of those reasons might be. So we've got several factors, uh, some of them intentional, some of them perhaps unintentional. The intentional factor is OPEC. OPEC has deliberately restricted its output in an attempt to bring inventories down. Back in 2020, the the very high level of inventories, the overproduction that we saw push oil prices to multi-decade lows. At one point, the the price of WTI in the United States went negative. The price of Brent dropped below $30 a barrel. So OPEC has responded to that by deliberately limiting its production. Why would it do that? Can you explain that to our listeners? Why this group of OPEC countries, this cartelized group of countries, why would they restrict how much they produce in response to high prices? So OPEC is the classic uh, revenue maximizing organization. They're looking for a a relatively high price, uh, a relatively high level of revenue, and they have the ability, you know, to exercise a degree of market power to be polite about it. (laughs) And so they have, um, you know, they very much resist the label of being a cartel, but they definitely have a degree of market power. And one of the things that they've tried to do is by restricting their own output to drive prices higher and improve their revenues. So there has been a very, that's a very deliberate, intentional uh, strategy. Mm -hmm. But we've also seen relatively subdued production from a number of other producer groups outside OPEC. So we've seen relatively restricted production from the United States. Shale producers were actually, the U.S. shale industry was the fastest growing part of the the oil industry, uh, really for a decade between sort of about 2010 and and the onset of the pandemic. So they were growing very rapidly. Yes, shale producers, these are the frackers for our our listeners who uh, aren't familiar with this uh, market. These are the frackers, particularly in Texas uh, and New Mexico, but a number of other oil-producing parts of the states. And at one point, they were their output was growing back in 2018 at one point by 2 million barrels a day per year. So that was the really, really rapid growth. That brought them into conflict with Saudi Arabia and the rest of OPEC. It led to two uh, short, sharp price wars back in 2015, 2016, uh, and again, just before the pandemic erupted. And subsequently, you know, they have, I think, adopted, they, they're, they're under pressure from their shareholders to adopt a much more conservative approach to increase output much more slowly, to focus on maximizing their returns and maximizing the repayment to shareholders. So there's been much slower growth from the U.S. shale sector. And then from the rest of the oil industry, what I call the nons, the non-OPEC, non-shale guys, uh, in a lot of cases, you know, they too were very badly hurt by the collapse in oil prices back in 2020. They slashed their exploration and production budgets. And that has led to uh, much slower growth in output in 2021 and 2022. They are starting to increase their exploration and production spending, but it's coming off a relatively low base. And it will take time for that to feed through into increased oil and gas output. Yeah, so for all those reasons, as I say, one of the problems within the oil and gas industry is it's always very cyclical. So the response to those ultra low prices in 2020 is a slowdown in investment, which causes production growth to be much slower in sort of 2021 and 2022, which causes the market to tighten, the price to rise. That's when you then get the increased investment spending and the increased production. And that then creates the conditions for a subsequent overproduction and a slump in prices at some point in the future. These industries have always been cyclical, and there's no reason to expect that the future will be any different. Yeah, John, I have a question about fracking history specifically here, because one of the hopes about fracking was that because of the nature of fracking technology, that every time the oil price started really climbing and got above a certain point, that the frackers could just hit the on switch and very quickly ramp up production of oil, and that that would help drive back down the cost of oil. And For a while, it kind of seemed like that actually might prove true, like those hopes might actually be realized. 
And I remember in the year 2014, the price of oil collapsed, and it was in response to all of the new production that was coming online from the frackers. And for a while, it is the case that the oil price like couldn't quite get up above a certain point, and that when it did, the frackers would just increase production again, and that would make sure that the oil price would not go too high. But a couple of other things also happened in the 2010s, which is that in a couple of instances, there were slumps in the price of oil, that the price of oil would decline, and the frackers lost a lot of money. I mean, their investors, investors in fracking companies lost a lot of money, partly because a lot of the fracking companies took on too much debt, maybe spent too much money. Uh, And also, it just kind of turned out that it wasn't as profitable an enterprise as a lot of people had thought that it would be. And so the worry now is that the fracking companies have been sort of chastened by their earlier experiences and that because of that, they're no longer willing to ramp up production in response to very high oil prices the way we might have expected them to be based on earlier experiences. And that for that reason, they've been kind of slow to respond to the current moment, to the high oil prices of the current moment. They are increasing production, but they're not increasing it too much. And so I'm just kind of curious to know what we should take from that trend. And if if you just largely agree with that analysis, that maybe the earlier hopes of fracking as being super responsive to the high price of oil were just sort of overdone and we just expected too much. Yeah, I think there's been a real change in behavior um, within this sector. I mean, from sort of about 2010 until the end of 2019, you know, the, the, the frackers were very much, they were innovators, they were revolutionaries, they were disruptors, they were changing the market, they were changing the way that um, prices were set, the way that the, the market behaved. Subsequently, I think they've become, their behaviors switched very much more to being much more conservative, to being more like incumbent firms. And I think there's a mixture of voluntary and involuntary reasons behind that. The voluntary one, they're under pressure from shareholders to improve the returns. The only people who didn't really benefit from the first two shale booms were really the investors. They made almost no money. Why is that, by the way? The money that was pumped into the industry disappeared in terms of inflated fees, inflated salaries, uh, inflated costs. And then there were two slumps within the space of seven years. And investors basically had pumped a huge amount of money in to fund a sort of a growth-first strategy. And now they want a returns-first strategy. The involuntary side of it is that Behind the fracking is a very, very complex supply chain. There are a lot of, there's a lot of skilled labor. There are a lot of oil field services firms. There are suppliers of everything from frac sand to trucking. And that supply chain has been very badly damaged by those two price slumps. A lot of people have left the industry. A lot of the supplier firms have gone bankrupt. So it's not proved as easy to ramp up production uh, a third time because a lot of that capacity has been damaged or has simply disappeared. Yeah, it sounds also then like maybe from the standpoint of the fracking industry, there was too much production too quickly in the past, which I want to be clear, that's great for the overall U.S. economy, right? Oil prices fall, plus there's this industry in the U.S. that can make oil. Plus, on top of that, it's good from a geopolitical standpoint because it makes the U.S. less dependent on foreign sources of oil. But from the standpoint strictly of the fracking industry, in the past, maybe they were too quick to, you know, ramp up production and they overdid it, given that it ended up being quite a loss-making problem for the actual investors in the industry. Is that an accurate way to characterize what happened in the earlier cycles when the frackers essentially got burned in those slumps? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was a this was a, a, a relatively immature sector. It was a little bit like um, you know, it was a little bit like a, a tech stock that was chasing market share rather than profitability. And at some point you have to switch, you have to pivot. The shareholders start demanding a return, and that's very much what's happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, in terms of where the frackers are right now. 
Okay, we know that they are responding more slowly than in the past, but are they responding at all? And what do you see as sort of the new calculus for how fracking responds to high oil prices in terms of ramping up production and possibly eventually contributing to oil prices starting to come back down? I mean, the industry is responding. It's just, as you say, it's just responding a little bit more slowly than in the two previous cycles. So it's now 80 weeks since we hit a sort of a low point in terms of the number of drilling rigs back in August 2020. And we have added extra drilling rigs since then at the rate of about 4.4 a week. At the same point in the last two cycles, we'd been adding rigs at an average of 5.5 or about 7.4 rigs a week. So this is, you know, we are adding rigs, but we're just doing it more slowly. And in some sense, that is that is an indication that the industry has grown up. It's behaving in a more mature way, more of a focus on, on profits rather than just pure production growth. Yeah. That said, you know, we are seeing that production response. And as prices climb, um, I would expect the number of rigs will will continue to increase. There's quite a long lag from a change in the price of oil to a change in the number of rigs drilling is, is usually an average delay of about four or five months. That's the amount of time management needs a little while to be confident that the price increase is going to be sustained. Then it's got to go out and, and hire and contract for additional rigs. It's got to move them onto the site. It's got to rig them up. It's got to begin drilling. So that's that's an overall four to five month delay. Then it takes probably about another six months uh, for the well to be drilled, um, for it to be fractured, for it to be completed, hooked up to all the gathering pipelines and for the commercial oil to start to flow. So the total lag from change in price to change in production is probably somewhere between 10 and 12 months. So the the price increases that we are seeing today, the price increases that we've seen over the past couple of months pushing oil towards $100 a barrel, that will have an impact on output at the end of this year and into 2023. So those price increases will continue to, to grow shale production, certainly all the way through this year and into the beginning of next. I want to move on to uh, natural gas, which is a market that I think is less well understood than the oil market. I mean, obviously, I'm not talking about, you know, energy analysts or people who follow the sector closely, but just like the general public. And so my first basic question for people who are new to trying to understand natural gas, especially these days, is how do we understand its role in energy markets, especially relative to oil? Uh, how would you characterize its importance uh, for global energy markets and sort of how that you know functions by region, which I know has a, a lot of disparities as well? Well, I mean, gas, I mean, historically, gas always played second fiddle to oil. But in recent decades, it's become increasingly important. It is the fastest growing of the fossil fuels. Historically, again, it was used as a heating fuel, a winter heating fuel. More recently, though, certainly since the 1990s, it has become increasingly important as a, as a fuel for power generation. And in that sector, it's pretty much, it's basically replaced coal. Certainly in North America and Western Europe, um, coal-fired power stations have increasingly been phased out in favor of natural gas. Natural gas is cleaner burning, fewer, fewer CO2 emissions, but it's also more flexible. It takes a long time to warm up a, a coal-fired power station, whereas a gas-fired power station is pretty much you've got electricity available at the flick of a switch, or certainly it allows you to respond to changes in electricity demand um, very much more quickly, and it's just overall very much more efficient. So gas has gradually pushed coal out of the power generation market and become an increasingly important part of the, of the electricity industry. Yeah, and... In your writing, you've touched on just how global this market really is. And in particular, the U.S. now exports a lot of liquefied natural gas to Europe. And in Europe and in the U.S., there are quite different prices 
for natural gas. So can you just get and give us a sense of what's happened with natural gas prices in roughly the past year or so in Europe and the U.S. and what the relationship is between the two? Yeah, I mean, again, historically, oil was always a global market. Natural gas was a regional market. I mean, natural gas was overwhelmingly delivered by pipelines, and it was very regional. There were separate regional markets in Asia, Europe, North America. That's starting to change. With the growth of the LNG sector, you're starting to see more it's a liquefied of liquefied global... natural gas, by the way, just to... Yeah. Just to... By that for, for our listeners. <laughs> so you're starting to see a global market, or at least you're starting to see an integrated market in Eurasia. Um, the odd man out is still North America. North America um, is still behaving very much as a somewhat isolated regional market, which is why you've seen prices there have remained relatively low, even as prices have been reaching record levels in in Europe and, and Asia this winter. And that's because at the moment, North America is an exporter, but the export capacity is limited. So the increased consumption in Europe and Asia is exerting a small upward pressure on U.S. prices, but it's still pretty limited at the moment because the LNG export capacity is still uh, is still a very small fraction of domestic production and consumption. As that LNG export capacity increases, of course we are going to see greater integration of of north american prices with uh, or markets with those in europe and asia and the 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 north american price level is likely to move much closer to those that prevail in europe and asia so it'll climb in other words right because right now it's a lot cheaper in the us yeah okay it, and it is very likely to climb okay very likely to climb but of course that has certain economic benefits as well for North America because it is an export. I mean, it's, it's yes, the natural gas price will climb, but it's also more revenues for, you know, for exporters as well, right, for the yeah, domestic absolutely. industry. So okay. it, will be a, it will be a net gain uh, for North American oil and gas producers. It will probably be a bit of a net loss if you are a manufacturer or a power producer that uses, that relies on cheap gas. Let's talk now about what's happening with uh, Ukraine and Russia and specifically the economic sanctions on Russia, about which we still don't know what their effects are going to be. We know a couple of things about Russia. One is that it provides an astonishing amount of natural gas to Europe. And then second, that Russia itself is a massive producer of oil. Um, So as of right now, The U.S. and Europe are saying that the economic sanctions on Russia have been designed to minimize the harm to energy trading, essentially, to energy markets. We don't know if that's necessarily going to be the case, um, but you have found something interesting, a kind of disconnect between what these governments are saying versus what the markets are anticipating. So take us through that. Yeah, so the Russians have insisted from the beginning that the conflict over Ukraine would not affect their oil and gas exports, that they would not try to use oil and gas exports as a weapon. And the United States and the European Union, for their part, have equally insisted that they will make sure that sanctions do not disrupt those oil and gas flows. So at the moment, At a government level, everybody is insisting that the conflict over Ukraine will have no impact whatsoever on the physical availability of oil and gas, and therefore it should have no impact whatsoever on prices. That's not what we're seeing um, in the financial markets. In the financial markets, we're seeing prices for oil and gas right climbing quite quickly, and their traders appear to be much less confident. They appear to feel that there actually is the potential for quite serious disruption to oil and gas exports. That could be for a couple of reasons. One is what you might call unintended problems. So um, the difficulty at the moment, for example, um, a Russian cargo carrier has been arrested in France 
Um, so there is the potential that there could be logistical problems in getting the oil and gas out because of sanctions policies. The other side of it is that I think the what I call the economic war, the economic war between Russia on the one hand and the United States and the EU on the other, has escalated very rapidly um, over the last few days. We've seen very much tougher sanctions um, being announced by the US and the EU um, over the weekend. And that raises the question about if we're moving towards what I call unrestricted economic warfare, where each side tries to inflict maximum damage on the other, are we moving into a world where actually Russia might decide that, yes, it is time to start weaponizing oil and gas? They don't have to shut the flow off completely. You know, they might just reduce it by, say, 20%. The consequence of that will be a very sharp rise in prices, which would inflict significant damage on the European and US economies. So traders seem to be pricing in at least a possibility that we're going to see, you know, a restriction in the in the amount of oil and gas coming out of Russia. Um, and that, that is what's currently pushing prices higher. Something I'm I'm always trying to be mindful of is that if there is, for example, a worst case scenario here where the sanctions for both those intentional and unintentional reasons that you mentioned end up severely crimping the flow of oil and gas out of Russia and that prices continue responding in kind, uh, that there will be some other kind of response to that later on. And I guess I'm wondering... What other options the world has if, in fact, something like the worst case scenario happens? Uh, Again, strictly talking about energy markets and not the, the wider devastation of the war and whatnot. What can the world actually do in response to this? So we've seen a very rapid escalation in in both oil and gas prices um, over the course of the last 12 to 18 months. Those markets, consumption is growing faster than production. Inventories are depleting. Um, to, To quote Richard Nixon's chief economic advisor, Herb Stein, if something cannot continue forever, it will stop. Mm -hmm. The question is, how will it stop? There are two fundamental options going forward. Either we have to have faster growth in oil and gas production to stabilize inventories and stabilize prices, or we have to have slower growth in consumption. To take the production side first, and let's just concentrate for the moment on the oil side, uh, because it's simpler and and it's probably um, a little bit more familiar to people. Faster production growth can come from one of four sources. It can come from OPEC, OPEC Plus, which includes the Russians. Uh, But they show no signs. The OPEC Plus group at the moment shows no signs of accelerating production. This could could be good for them, right? I mean, keeping prices high, great profit margins, you know. What yeah, they they, they love yeah. this. This is this is this is ideal. This is a a high price, high revenue environment. Yeah, it could come from U.S. shale producers, but again, they're not showing any signs at the moment um, of accelerating their production. It could come from the nons, the non OPEC, non shale guys. Again, possibly possible acceleration of growth there, but it's very limited. Or the final option is that you could try to get more oil out of Iran and or Venezuela. In both cases, their exports are severely crimped by uh, by U.S. sanctions at the moment. But there are signs that the U.S. and Iran are moving towards that the nuclear negotiations are moving towards a conclusion and that sanctions might be eased on on Iran in exchange for renewed limits on its uranium enrichment and other nuclear activities. So oh, that's interesting. So like sanctions, new sanctions would be put in place on Russia and essentially other older sanctions might be swapped out on at least Iran. Um, I don't know what the situation would be in Venezuela, but essentially you'd have you'd have offsetting sets of sanctions in a way. You might draw that linkage. I'm sure that the Biden administration will be very determined uh, to avoid to that. that. That linkage <laughs> does not exist. However, um, you might well draw that linkage. <laughs> 
Uh, and certainly, you know, I think that the the escalating conflict over Ukraine and with Russia is probably helping push those nuclear negotiations towards a conclusion at the moment. Yes, I think that's I think that's fair to say. Speaking of nuclear, it seems like in response to the tensions between Russia and Ukraine, and especially given the vulnerability of Europe, which imports so much Russian natural gas, it seems like Germany uh, has reconsidered its approach towards nuclear power. And I'm wondering if that is also going to be a response from other parts of the world, which uh, I think had been shunning nuclear, or at least that had been the trend for a while, even though that could be another potential source of energy. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, look, I, uh, nuclear has become incredibly unfashionable in North America and Western Europe and Japan. Um, it's still seen as a very important component of the future energy system in China and the Middle East. Chinese are building lots of additional nuclear reactors because they feel that that is an important way of reducing their dependence on coal and reducing their dependence on imported oil and gas. So for them, it's a a key part of the energy system um, and they're investing very heavily. In Europe, I don't think the current gas crisis will have a major impact. I mean, the Germany's decommissioning program is already pretty far advanced and nuclear reactors are not something that you can just switch on and switch off uh, at short notice. So my suspicion is that the, the gas crisis will not give those German nuclear reactors a new lease of life. But I think it probably will concentrate mines in places like France, in places like the UK, give the governments in those countries sort of um, a renewed reason to look at nuclear as part of the of the energy mix over the next 20 to 30 years. Um, if you take nuclear out of the mix, you are very reliant on renewables and gas um, to meet your electricity needs. What is it about the uh, the Ukraine-Russia crisis of the moment that you think people should be paying attention to that you think is maybe underplayed? Again, this is very new, but for the moment, underplayed uh, in the media and that maybe just hasn't gotten enough attention, uh, specifically as regards to potential vulnerabilities in energy markets or any other effects it might have on energy markets? Yeah, I think the thing that that, that I think policymakers are perhaps not focusing on sufficiently at the moment is if you are going to have a very aggressive form of sanctions imposed on Russia and those sanctions are going to persist for a sustained period of time, i.e. not days or weeks, but but months and potentially years, you are talking about something that will impact on future oil and gas production. And what is lost from Russia will have to be replaced from somewhere else and will likely have a significant impact on the price of oil and gas around the world, and it will have an impact on on inflation, and it will have an impact um, on on household budgets and the cost of living. So, sanctions, uh, you know, have become the sort of the go-to tool for policymakers. They're a, they're a much more attractive tool than than military involvement and military operations, but they have real costs, and those costs are borne by businesses and households. So I think policymakers need to proceed quite carefully at the moment. And I think, you know, as I say, I think that the costs of sanctions are going to become more evident in the weeks and months ahead. Something about energy markets that seems relevant to this is that the costs of energy are a lot harder to avoid for households all throughout the world than the costs of other goods and services that households buy And what I mean by that is that, you know, if I have an old creaky refrigerator and suddenly the cost of a new refrigerator doubles or something crazy, I can hold out. I can just deal with my old crappy refrigerator for a while. But if I have to drive to work, I need gas, right? There's no getting around that. In the wintertime, if I live in a really cold part of the world, I need heat or my kids are going to be in danger, like their health will be at risk, their lives might be at risk. It's a very hard good. It's a very hard thing to avoid 
And so when the economic cycle in energy is as extreme as it is now, it sort of seems inevitable that there's going to be consequences for other parts of the economy because even though prices are going up, they got to be paid, right? I mean, on the margin, yes, people can consume less energy, but it seems like it's harder to respond by just shutting down consumption of energy relative to other goods and services. And this just seems different in nature to other kinds of goods and services that people buy. Uh, but can I just like get your general thoughts on that and, and how like energy differs as a product that people consume versus other things? So I think I'd make I'd make three points here. The first is that energy is one of the largest costs for most households after food and housing, food and shelter. So it is a relatively large part of their budget. Secondly, um, it is a particularly, proportionately, it is a much higher share of the budget for lower income households. So higher energy prices have real distributional implications, and they hit the poorest households very hard. Third, most people do not have a lot of flexibility in over their energy consumption in the short term. Their energy consumption is determined by long-lived capital choices they've made. It depends on the type of car they've bought, the type of refrigerator they have. It depends on their domestic heating system. These are long-lived investments. They are not things that can be replaced or changed very quickly. So most households are simply forced to absorb any increase in energy costs. They don't have a choice. And as I say, it hits the poorest households very hard. For households in the lower deciles of the income distribution, energy costs can be over 10% of their total spending. So a sharp rise in energy prices means that they have to cut back somewhere else. Yeah. John, this has been a great chat. And I want to close by asking about the future. We've mainly been talking about, you know, what's happened in the last couple of years in energy markets. It's been such an extraordinary time. But let's, uh, yeah, let's let's uh, cast our eyes out to the horizon for a second. You wrote a column about um, how slowly the shift towards renewables has been in roughly the last half century. And one of the things you write is, and I'm quoting here, between 1973 and 2019, the share of total primary energy consumption supplied by fossil fuels, so oil and gas and the like, declined from 92% to 80%. So, you know, that's 12 percentage points. That's progress, okay, that's, you you might even say that is decent, meaningful progress, but certainly I think it's a lot slower than what a lot of people would like. Obviously, environmentalists would like it to be, you know, a lot faster, but I think most of us who are worried about climate change or other environmental issues or just also want our own home countries to be a little bit less reliant on foreign producers of energy uh, who sometimes have sort of, um, you know, problematic, to say the least, you know, geostrategic aims. Uh, I think a lot of us would like the progress to be faster. And instead, what we've had is definitely progress, but slow, very slow and kind of steady progress. And my question is this, is the slowness of that progress something that we should take as a given that, okay, it took half a century for it to come down 12 percentage points, maybe to be a little faster in the next half century or so? Or is that something where we just need the cost of the technology to produce energy using these renewables and these alternative sources of energy to come down beneath the point where it's just competing in the marketplace against fossil fuels and winning? And at that point, it actually becomes too costly to use fossil fuels and there will be a huge accelerated move towards solar and wind and other kinds of uh, renewables and alternatives. Uh, What do you think about that? 
I mean, cost competitiveness has uh, for renewables has improved enormously um, over the last, you know, two or three decades. There is, with renewables, like every other technology, there is a learning curve. They start off being very expensive. As you have learning by doing, the unit cost comes down. They have become very competitive over time. The challenge is that they're not necessarily completely flexible. You know, there is a real problem. I mean, here in the UK, for example, our highest demand for energy is in the winter months, in particular, cold, grey, very still days uh, in the middle of December when the temperature is very low, heating demand is very high, we have no, we have very little solar output and we have no wind. And potentially, you know, those periods can last several days, even a couple of weeks. So there is still a challenge about how we meet sort of those seasonal energy demands from intermittent renewables. And we haven't completely solved that yet. Uh, One solution is potentially battery storage, but we're still only doing that on a fairly small scale. The longer term question that you're asking, which is, you know, can we... We can see that the energy system is shifting and evolving towards a greater share of renewables and a smaller share of fossil fuels. Can we accelerate that? Well, certainly policymakers are working very hard to accelerate it, but it is phenomenally difficult. You know, the energy system involves some very large, very long-lived investments, capital investments, and it tends to change very slowly. As you've noted, you know, we've been we've been working on boosting the share of renewables, um, and it's still quite low. It is a formidable challenge to scale up renewable energy production to replace all of today's existing coal, gas, and oil consumption. And there is an even bigger challenge, which is that there are still billions of people in developing countries who have either almost no access to modern energy or whose energy consumption is still very low. And they want they want the same air conditioning, they want the same heating, they want the same opportunity to travel and see their family and friends, they want the same opportunity to jump on an aeroplane and go and visit other parts of the world that we take for granted. Uh, in North America and Europe. So there is enormous unmet energy demand in Africa, Asia, Latin America. So not only do we have to scale up renewables to replace the existing consumption of oil, gas and coal in the developed countries, we have to scale them up even further to meet all of that future energy demand that is coming um, down the line from the developing world. And that is a huge challenge. We do a disservice to ourselves if we do not under, uh, do not acknowledge the scale of that problem. You know, on the point of developing countries wanting access to the same thing that people in the developed countries have, which I mean, obviously, that's you know something that I think we would all would all agree. Like, it would be wrong to take steps to deny them that, right? And how that wish sort of conflicts with. What we would hope is a move away over time from high emissions energy technologies. What's fascinating about this is that you've written that OECD economies, so those that's roughly the the group of 30-something developed economies, you know, the, the quote unquote rich world. You've written that OECD economies have a political and moral responsibility to take the lead in energy conservation and reducing emissions, but decisions made by non OECD economies will have a bigger practical impact in the future. And yet, it's also the case that when it comes to investing in technologies in the developing world, it kind of seems like developed economies, advanced economies, the rich world, is not really shouldering its load. It's not bearing that responsibility well. Uh, What do you think? Yeah, I mean, we, from the perspective of If we want to counter global warming, we want to limit the CO2 emissions into the atmosphere, the single biggest thing that will impact on that is how quickly renewable zero emission technologies diffuse into the developing world. We need to get 
zero emission energy technologies uh, to be rapidly adopted in China to replace their coal combustion. But we also need to get them rapidly adopted in India, across the rest of Southeast Asia, across Africa, to societies which at the moment consume very little energy, but which are likely to want to and will consume a lot more energy in future. So the the single most important thing that will affect the future trajectory for global emissions is how quickly we spread, we help diffuse low emission technologies into the developing world. And that should really be, I think, the top priority for policymakers in OECD countries. Now, some of that may involve um, trying to roll those uh, those technologies out at home in, in North America and Western Europe in the hope that that will drive further learning by doing, that that will drive down unit costs, that it will ultimately help diffusion into developing countries. But I, I do think this is one of the areas where at the moment it does feel... It does feel a little bit like a lot of the climate negotiations are about politicians from North America and Western Europe preaching what should happen and and the developing countries are almost treated like bystanders in these negotiations. But ultimately, the choices that they make are going to have the biggest impact on the level of climate change going forward. And my last question, John, is more of a personal one. Um, You know, you are yourself, obviously, a trusted source, my own personal favorite trusted source on energy markets. Uh, But I'm curious to know who you follow uh, and what you read on this topic and if that's something that you can share with our listeners so that they can also uh, extend their own knowledge and understanding of these markets. So I, uh, there's two sources for me. The first is I'm a huge fan of Twitter. I mean, I know Twitter gets a bad press, but I think if you use Twitter very selectively um, and you're very careful um, who you choose to follow on there, um, I find Twitter an absolutely invaluable um, resource. uh, And it's kind of become my sort of Mm go-to for both energy news and also for contemporary research. And then I read a lot. I read a lot of energy history. Currently, the book beside my bed is a history of Britain's coal industry, between uh, before the year 1700, so between about 1300 and 1700. And you might laugh about that. (laughs) I was suppressing a laugh about that, but yeah. (laughs) You know what? But you know what? As I read that book, what I'm struck by is all the similarities with the contemporary energy industry. You know, one of the things that I'm, you know, been reading about is, you know, the attempt by coal producers in Newcastle to organize a cartel in order to keep the price of coal high (laughs) and improve their profitability. And the complaints by all the coal customers in London about that cartel behavior and trying to get the government to, to crack down on monopolization in the sector. So I actually find that by re, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, the the issues, the problems, the challenges that the modern energy industry faces have all been faced before. And so I find that kind of historical reading really illuminating, partly because there's a lot more emotional distance. You can read about Newcastle coal producers versus London coal consumers and it's a little bit more academic. There's a little bit less emotion involved rather than talking about, you know, OPEC versus North American motorists. So I find that kind of perspective is is really is really useful actually. And I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Yeah, excellent. Uh, and for people who are not going to go back and read books about the 13th <laughs> to 17th century uh, British coal market, uh, <laughs> tell people where they can follow your work specifically. So the best place to follow my work is is on Twitter. I tweet at Jay Kemp Energy. 
And if you go there, I also have a mailing list. I send out a daily links list of what I call best in energy news and and research articles, and also some of my own research. Uh, And you can sign, if you go to my Twitter feed, there is a link and you can sign up uh, to receive a daily email as well. Okay. John Kemp, thanks so much for this chat. Thanks, Cardiff. And that's our show for this week. We'll post a link to John's excellent newsletter at Reuters in the show notes for this episode so that you can subscribe, as I really think you should. The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio from me and executive producer Amy Keene. Speaking of energy, who really needs oil and gas or anything else when the incredible energy of Amy is what really powers Bazaar Audio? Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer, and our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you enjoyed today's show, leave us a review or tell a friend. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Heart of Garcia, or you can email us at hello at bizarreaudio.com. And we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>